This morning we're going to be continuing in our series through the Gospel of John. If you're visiting with us this morning, this is a series that we've been in all year. We've been walking really slowly through the different twists and turns in the life and ministry of Jesus. The Gospel of John is one of the earliest accounts of what Jesus did and what he said. It's an ancient story written by one of his friends who was there, had a first-hand eyewitness experience of Jesus. And we've been trying to follow him through, through the twists and turns of Jesus' ministry, watching as, as, as people turned from intrigued and maybe hopeful about how Jesus could change their lives to hostile towards him, as they turned bitter to the things that he, that he said he came to do, to the claims he made about who he was. So much so, so much hostility that, that where we are now in the story, we see Jesus on the night before he was going to be killed. He knows they're coming for him. He knows they want to take his life because he's a threat to them and what they love. And here he is on the last night of his life with his closest friends trying to get them ready for life after he's gone so that they won't be afraid about, what, about what's to come after Jesus is killed. He wants them ready for the sorrow that they're about to experience. That's where we, that's where we are this morning in John chapter 16. That's where the story picks up. This summer, uh, we... My family moved into a new place, into a new house. And in the front yard of this new house is a, is a huge old maple tree. And pretty much since we moved into the place, we've been waiting to see what this tree would look like in the fall. We've been wondering about the color. You know, first year for us in the house, we weren't exactly sure. It's going to be a red one, a yellow one, an orange one. We, couldn't, we were trying to imagine what it would look like in full bloom, so to speak. And we were not disappointed. A few weeks back, the top leaves started to change first. Okay, the first little shoots that go up to the very top of the tree, they started to change first, and they looked pretty yellow. But then over the next couple of weeks, it started to, to spread down, and we realized that on the edges, it was going to be orange. So it was one of those cool trees where it's, it's sort of multicolored, and it just the yellows and the orange blend in and out of each other, and sometimes even on the same leaf, You've got some of both colors. For maybe a week or two, the color stayed near the edges, and, and in the middle, it was still lots of green. And then, and then almost overnight, it seemed like, that what was left, the green that was left, changed into yellow. And we saw the tree in all of its glory. The whole thing had turned. That was probably last Friday. Last Saturday morning, you know, we're drinking our coffee, and uh, just enjoying a nice, relaxed morning before the stress of the college football game slated for that day. And we're looking out the windows, and we notice it almost looks like it's snowing out there. I mean, it is a, there's, there's a, good, a decent wind, and it is a constant stream of leaves pretty much all day. And by the end of the day, I kid you not, what had been a full, beautiful yellow and orange tree was almost empty after one day. Almost literally, as soon as we got what we wanted, it was gone. And by a couple of days later, the leaves were just brown and wet and not much good for anything except the epic leaf pile that we made yesterday morning that was taller than my kids and they were diving into head first. I love the fall. It's my favorite time of year. I love the beautiful leaves. I love the chili. I love the, the mild temperatures and all the football. I love the bonfires. I love all the pumpkin-flavored everything. I love fall, but it strikes me that fall, every year, it's a pretty good metaphor for life. 
In the sense that I go into it every year knowing early September, man, this is good. And this is not going to last. It is going to be over by the time I blink my eyes. Every year I go into it knowing that, and every year I'm surprised by how fast it's over. It strikes me that, that, that the fall, and, and then just this single maple tree in our yard, is a pretty good metaphor for what life is like. Right? Nothing lasts. And the more you love something, the more it hurts when that something is gone. The deeper the joy, the deeper the pain. can make you wonder whether it would be easier to avoid loving anything at all rather than loving something and then losing it. Don't you ever crave something that lasts? Something that, that's good and enjoyable but won't run out or fade away. This this sort of stable and lasting joy is precisely what Jesus is offering in the passage we're going to look at this morning. It's not something I've ever experienced in any other part of my life. It's something that requires faith even to believe that it's possible. But it's exactly what Jesus offers. At the heart of the passage we're going to look at this morning, the last words that Jesus says to his friends about who he is and what he's doing here on earth. The last words are a promise to his friends that they can have a joy that no one could take. They could have a peace in the midst of tribulation. That's his choice of word. And that he's the key to it. So we want to understand his promise this morning and we want to understand how he expects to deliver on that promise. Why should we trust him? And, and we want to understand how we connect to this joy that's supposed to last and that nothing is able to take away. How do we, sitting where you are this morning, how do you connect with the joy that Jesus is talking about in our passage? That's what's before us this morning. I want to read the passage first. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read it. I'm going to read John chapter 16, verses 16 to 33. This is the word of the Lord. The night before he was killed. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you won't see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you won't see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman's giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she's delivered the baby... She no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. 
Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I'll no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you'll ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. I want to make three simple claims this morning out of this passage. Three simple steps. These things are in your worship guide if you want to follow along with me. Nothing fancy here. Nothing very memorable, unfortunately. But I think it's clear and I think it's true to the text. Here's the things I want to say. Jesus promises real sorrow overcome by lasting joy. That's observation number one. Jesus promises real sorrow overcome, though, by lasting joy. Second observation. It's the next step. Jesus makes this joy possible by his death and resurrection. And then finally, we connect to this joy when we trust the Father and treasure the Son. Those are the three steps we want to take. Let's take them together, starting with number one. This is... This is just an overarching thing about the passage I want to quickly point you to because I think it helps us understand all the details we're going to get into here in a minute. I want you to first see what all the details are building to. They all build to a promise that comes up several times in the passage. It's a promise of joy, but not any sort of joy. It's it's a promise of a, a realistic, resilient joy that holds true not for those whose charmed lives are free of any sort of real pain or sorrow. That's not the kind of joy he's talking about. Not the kind of joy that other people who have different jobs from yours or different bank accounts than yours, different families than yours, not other people who have charmed lives. It's not joy for them. It's, it's real joy, resilient joy. Jesus is promising sorrow just as much as he's promising joy. What he's saying is that in a life you will have Marked by both sorrow and joy, joy is what lasts. That's what he's saying. Now, I'm going to show you how to get there. Uh, It comes up in verse 20, for example. Look at verse 20. I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Is there anything worse? Is there any experience worse than having the very thing that makes you miserable makes someone else happy? That's why I don't watch college football games in mixed company. the very thing that makes you miserable is the thing that makes them happy maybe even more maybe what Jesus is getting at is your misery is what makes them happy 
That's what Jesus is promising for his friends in, in the, the next day. This is going to happen to them the next day. But that's not the end of his that's not the end of his statement. You will be sorrowful, he says. That's a promise. Sorrow is coming, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Same point gets made again in verse 22. You have sorrow now, Jesus says. And again, I'm not trying to tell you your life's going to be free of pain and sorrow. You're going to have sorrow tomorrow. This is happening. You have sorrow now, but I'll see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. You might have sorrow, but it, you'll have a joy that no one, no sorrow can take from you. And then, and then he builds to it again in verse 33. It's the last example. I've said these things to you. This is, this is why we need to stop here, right? Jesus is saying, I've said these things. Everything that's come before was for this purpose. The reason I said all I've said is that in me, you might have peace. Oh, we might have peace. We might finally be free of all the things that fade, of all the things that are taken from us, free of loss, free of sorrow. No. No, read on in verse 33. In the world, this world that I came, in which I came to give you peace, in the world, you're going to have tribulation. People are going to come for you. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In the world, you'll have tribulation. There's a promise. There's a promise that takes us out of the realm of what Jesus was saying to his disciples about what they were going to experience the next day and into the realm of what would be true for anyone who's ever lived. The earliest examples, he's still talking to his friends who are about to see him killed. He's talking about their sorrow that they're going to experience that next day. Verse 33 takes the same idea and shoots it forward to all of us, all of you sitting where you are. In the world, he tells you, you're going to have tribulation. That's a fact. That's a promise. But take heart. I have overcome the world, and in me, you can have peace. I want you to make sure you notice the realism in this picture. Trusting Jesus doesn't protect you from sorrow. It didn't protect his closest friends from sorrow. How much less will it protect us? And trusting Jesus doesn't require that you pretend your sorrow isn't real. Jesus is not interested in turning you into Unikitty. I guess you guys haven't watched the Lego movie. There's this character in the Lego movie that lives in a place called Cloud Cuckoo Land. And she, she refuses to acknowledge the existence of anything negative. Just doesn't exist. Think positive thoughts. And as her world falls apart in this one scene, she's shoving it down further and further. This isn't happening. This isn't happening. Positivity. Until she explodes in a very predictable way. <laughs> Jesus is not asking you to be Unikitty or Pollyanna or whatever association you want to give to it he's not asking you for a naive optimism jesus is promising tribulation to you but his promise is that in a life that's marked by joy and sorrow joy is what lasts for those who trust in jesus now that sounds great the question we ought to be asking of this passage and of Jesus, the question you should be asking this morning, whether you believe in him now 
or still weighing whether to believe in him, the question you should ask is, why should I believe that Jesus can give me a sorrow or a joy that will outlast my sorrow? Why should I believe that in a life that's marked by both joy and sorrow, joy is what lasts? Joy is what defines me. That's the question that Jesus wants to answer in this passage. And it's a question that's rooted in something that happened. Jesus' answer to how you tap into a joy that lasts is not follow these special rules and you will be freed from the suffering of life. His answer is not a standard that you have to meet. His answer is not an ideal that you need to understand and aim your life at. Jesus' answer to what it takes to give you a joy that won't be faced by sorrow is an event that happened, something that he did for you once and for all. The key to the joy Jesus wants to give you in the midst of sorrow and tribulation is his death and his resurrection. That's what this passage is mostly about. I want to walk you through some of these details so you can see it for yourself. Jesus says this peace in the midst of tribulation, the reason you can take heart is in the fact that he has overcome the world. There's a great irony here. Jesus is is talking almost past tense about what he's done when he's about to be killed. He's only hours away from being marched in humiliation through the center of the city up to a place where his life will be beaten out of him. And Jesus is talking about it as if he's already won a victory. I love that about him. Here's what one way one commentator put it. Jesus is looking ahead to the cross. He's talking about having overcome the world. The cross, this writer says, would seem to the outsider to be Jesus' total defeat. He sees it as a complete victory over all that the world is and can do to him. He goes to the cross not in fear or in gloom, but as a conqueror. Really, at, at the beginning of this conversation with his disciples, where they're confused, his, his cryptic statement about, in a little while, you're not going to see me. And then a little, little while after that, you'll see me again. They don't understand what he means. They're confused. They're talking amongst themselves. He maybe overhears them, speaks into it. What do these details mean? The little while that, that I'll be gone away, and then a little while and you see me again. I think, I think pretty clearly what they're what these details are pointing to is the fact that in just a little bit, he would be killed and he would be buried. And, and with him, his disciples' hopes for their lives, for their nation, for the world, that in the time that he was dead, they would have a deep sorrow that most of us won't ever be able to even taste. They had hung everything on him and they would watch him humiliated, killed, and buried. They would watch their enemies celebrate the death of their hopes and dreams. That's what's waiting for them that next day. That's what Jesus means when he says, in a little while you won't see me again. He's telling them first so that they'll be ready for it. So that they'll know to look ahead to something more. That's why he's telling them that in a little while after that, your sorrow will turn to joy. There will come a time for my return. You'll see me again and then you'll rejoice. You see that? That's what he means. He's speaking a little cryptically now. He knows they're not ready to understand it. So he's not telling them everything that's going to happen. We have the benefit of reading the whole story and then looking back into this section and knowing, oh, that's what Jesus was talking about. He's about to go away into the grave, but then he's going to come back again. He's talking about his death and his resurrection. 
This is the same point that he's making in his powerful analogy, the analogy to childbirth, to, to what a mother experiences in excruciating pain, followed by, by an incredible joy. The night of my first son's birth was maybe the worst night of my life, and I didn't feel a thing. Just from sitting there, helpless, watching my wife in agony. I can't even imagine what that felt like from her perspective. The pain was real. The kind of pain that under normal circumstances, under normal circumstances, you're looking back on the night of November 15th into the morning of November 16th, normal normal circumstances, you experience that kind of pain during that window, and that's what defines that day, right? Looking back on it four years later, like, oh, that was that time when I spent the whole night in excruciating pain. I never felt anything like that. Oh, I hope that never happens again. Right? That's what you would norm- normally you experience pain like that, and, and that's the story, the pain. I won't speak for her, but I think if you asked her, though, that the pain is a distant, faded memory compared to the joy that we had when our son was born. Jesus is right. That bears out in our experience. It doesn't mean the pain wasn't real. It was. He's not trying to minimize it. He's, he's trying to capitalize on it. He's saying, you think about how painful that is? That's, that, that's a, a faint reflection of the pain you're going to experience when you watch your hopes and dreams crucified the next day. The pain is real. The sorrow exists. But when you see me again, when you see that I have conquered death, when, I have, that, when you see that I have taken on the enemy that is a greater threat to you than anything the Roman Empire could pose, when you see that I have taken on the great final enemy and conquered then the sorrow that you will have experienced that day and night those three days it'll be a faded memory for the joy of what has been unleashed on the world by what I've done you have sorrow now but when you see me your hearts will rejoice that's what Jesus says in verse 22 And this is the joy, the joy of seeing him again that no one can take away. This is a joy that provides a peace that real tribulation in the world can't prevent because he has overcome the world. Now, friends, the the passage we're looking at this morning, this part of what Jesus says doesn't really go into how his death works and what his resurrection means and how those two things, his death and his resurrection, help us understand our sorrow differently and hold on to a joy that sorrow can't take from us? He doesn't really explain it here. He's only pointing ahead to it. And we don't have the time to get into how it all works. But the gist of it is that in his death, Jesus has taken away the sin of all those who trust in him, the sin that they deserve to be punished for, He has wiped it away as a sacrifice that no lamb, no cow could ever provide. The sacrifice of a sinless and perfect and divine being who came for you. And in his resurrection, in the fact that Jesus was really dead but now is not, we see a promise that his death was sufficient. It did what it was supposed to do. There is no penalty for any sin that could ever be committed that wasn't paid for. And that means death 
which is an, impo- an imposter that has come to us because of sin, death itself has had its power evacuated. That's what the promise of his resurrection is to you. That there is nothing you've done that can keep you from God if you will trust in the one that he sent. That there is nothing that could threaten you, including your own death, that could keep you from him if you trust the one who's conquered. At the very least, I want to say to those of you who are considering Jesus this morning that you need to evaluate what he's saying here and the kind of things you may have heard him say elsewhere. You need to evaluate the kind of things he's saying not just on how they strike you, not just on whether you want them to be true, not just on whether you don't want them to be true, but on whether the thing that makes his claims possible actually happened. That's where you want to evaluate Jesus. Jesus is saying, everything that matters about who I am and what I've come to do hinges on whether I go away for a little while and then come back. It hinges on whether he really died and really rose from the grave. Jesus is not an idea that you use to make sense of the world. Jesus is a person who has done something or not. And if he has then everything else falls into place. And if he hasn't, then he's not worth your time. So if you're considering Jesus this morning, I want to encourage you to think long and hard about the resurrection, to think about whether it happened, and to look at the really compelling evidence that it did. Because the evidence is strong. And if Jesus really did come to life, then everything he says takes on a new light, takes on a new power to define you and who you are. I want to just encourage you, that, that one of the steps towards connecting with the joy that Jesus is saying is possible is to investigate whether or not the thing he says makes that joy possible actually did happen. It's evidence that's worth your time. I mean, if you're convinced already this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus, then here's what I want you to notice about this text. Jesus tells his friends that it's when they see him again, it's when he's come back from the grave, when he's resurrected, that they'll rejoice with a joy that no one can take. He's not talking about a future coming. He's not saying, when I come again to make all things new, when I come back in all my glory, then you'll have a joy that no one can take away from you. He's not saying that. He's saying, when you see me again, when the resurrection has happened, then you'll have a joy that no one can take away from you. We're living in that time. We're living in the time when this joy is possible for you. It's possible not after something changes in your life, but right now, where you are. So how? How do we connect to the joy that Jesus came to provide? That's the last step I want us to take together this morning. If you're following along in the worship guide, it's point number three. Jesus points us to two sources of this joy that are ours because he died and rose again. Two of the fruits of him dying and coming back. These are the two things. What, what I want to offer in these last few minutes by pointing you to these two things. Is, is, this isn't a, a simple program that you, can, that you can walk through in order to connect to the joy. That's complicated. It's different for everybody. What I want to do is show you the targets you're going to need to be aimed at if you want to connect with this joy. Anyone who connects with a joy that holds on through sorrow does so because they trust the Father 
and they treasure the sun. There's your target. We can talk one-on-one about how to shoot at it. But th- this is what you want to be aiming for. Jesus points us there in the passage this morning. You've got to trust the Father, and you've got to treasure the Son. First, trusting the Father. Notice what Jesus says immediately after he promises that nobody can take their joy from them. That's back up in, ch- in verse 22. Jesus says, You have sorrow now, but I'll see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, in the day when no one will take your joy, in the day after I'm back again, in that day, in this day, you will ask nothing of me. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. See what he did there? What happens when Jesus goes away for a little while and then comes back, when Jesus dies and rises again, is something changes about the way you relate to the Father. No longer will you ask me. You'll ask the Father. Ask him anything, trusting in me, and he'll give it to you. Same thing comes out in verses 25 and following. In that day, the day after I've come back, the day we're living in right now, you can ask anything in my name. But I don't say I will ask you on the Father, the Father on your behalf. I'm important to this process. He's already made that clear. He had to do something to make this possible that you could come to God. But he's saying the Father himself loves you. You come to the Father who made you. And you come to him as a beloved child who that Father loves to provide for and to support. Come straight to him and trust in him and what he gives. Ask him anything and he'll give you what you need. I think what Jesus is pointing to is that his death and his resurrection have changed how we relate to the God that made us. That there is a a relationship that looks like a family that's now in place anytime you trust in him. What Jesus has done by dying and rising again is bring a contact that wasn't possible before. He's been hinting at it throughout John. There's just one place where he talked about himself as a temple that would be destroyed and then raised again three days later. He's talking about himself as a place where people meet God, just like in the temple before. Now the temple won't be necessary because through me, you go straight to him. It'll be as natural as, natural as, as asking the father who loves you for something as a child. His resurrection proves that it worked. The power of death is no more. And there is nothing standing between you and the one who made you when you come to him through Jesus. To come to him in his name. In Jesus' name is to come trusting him. To come loving Jesus. To come believing that God sent him. That he's the answer. That's what it means to come in Jesus' name. And what that that looks like, I think, to connect to this joy. What it has to look like for us is prayer. That's what he says over and over again. What it will look like for us to have a relationship with God where we're trusting the Father, where we're just sort of living in His peace, not stressed about all the other things that are weighing in on us, however real they might be. What that would look like in practice would be for us to instinctively go to Him with everything that's important to us. I think Jesus is pulling on the imagery of young children and how they just naturally behave. And there is an age where, that children get to where they, they start to take on some of the stresses of, of adult life. Where they start to 
be worried about what they are making of themselves. Worried about who does like them and who doesn't like them. Worried about whether they have been what they should be for their parents. But there's an age before they come to that sort of awareness. I'm talking about young kids here. And they're fickle, and they're often disappointed, and they're cranky, and they're selfish, right? Just like all of us, just unfiltered. <laughs> but by and large, what these children don't have in a loving and supportive environment, what children in that sort of environment don't have is anxiety over their survival over their significance as people, over whether or not they're accepted or affirmed. They look to their parents for everything. They're never afraid to ask. They go around asking all the time. They don't always get what they want. They don't always handle it well when they don't get what they want. But that's a, that's a wide open communication line, right? They go to the one who they know is providing for them. They just ask. And they live in peace, relatively. It's a short window, but it's real in a loving and supportive environment. And I think that's the image Jesus is wanting for our lives. It isn't a promise, I don't think. We shouldn't read these promises of what happens when we come to Jesus and ask in his name as a promise that everything we ever want will be given to us. And that would be the worst thing God could do for us because we want things we shouldn't. But it is at the very least a statement that we should never be afraid to ask for anything that he relates to us like a father who loves to provide peace for his children, who loves when his children lay down at night and rest because they know what they need most is not on them to provide. The joy that sorrow can't take away, that, that pushes through it, is a joy that comes to those who trust the father and who live in that trust by living in prayer where prayer is just your natural instinct. This, Jesus says, is what makes for a joy that is full. Verse 24. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Your Father loves you. I went away. I came back. Ask your Father that loves you. The second target, the second key to this lasting joy. I want to put it out in front of you. Talk more one-on-one about how to shoot at it. The second key is to treasure the Son. Jesus says in verse 33 that it's in me that you have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. That's still going to be true. But take heart. I have overcome the world and in me you have what you need. When our treasure, when the thing that our heart is attached to intimately, when we are locked on to something that death can't threaten, that the world can't take away, to something that's untouchable, then nothing can touch our treasure. Then a joy is possible beyond what sorrow and loss can take away. What hurts our joy, I heard one pastor put it this way, it helped, helped me think through it. What keeps our joy in check is the fact that we die and the things that we love die. 
We die, the things that we attach to for our joy, those things die. For a joy to last, for a joy to be a joy that nothing can take away, then we would need to not die, and we would need to be attached to something. Our affections, our joys and loves would need to be attached to something that isn't going to die. To a meal that you never get to the end of. To a fall that just stretches on for all of eternity. Most of our joys fall short because we cap them in just these ways. We settle for things that aren't going to last. We do it. We do it anyway. Or we settle for living our lives as if they end with our deaths. So we may as well live it up and get what we can now. But there is a kind of joy that's possible for those who lock on to Jesus as the bread of life. That when you eat him, you'll never be hungry again. To the living water that once you've tasted of it, wells will spring up within you. To the one who is the resurrection and the life. If no tribulation can threaten the thing that we enjoy, if our joy is rooted in something untouchable, it doesn't mean that sorrow isn't real. It means that sorrow, however real it might be, is not connected to the thing that we live for, to the thing that we enjoy. I think Jesus' childbirth analogy is is a helpful way to wrap it up. The pain that comes with childbirth is real pain. But it is not a pain that can threaten the joy of having a child long after the pain has passed away. Pain is real, but it doesn't touch the joy that comes through on the other side of it. The pain is real, but it doesn't have layered onto it the anxiety over whether or not the thing I really love might be taken away. And what Jesus offers to you this morning is a joy that if you place your heart there, if you treasure Jesus and all that He is, a joy that no one can take from you. Father, We want something that doesn't end. We want to enjoy something that doesn't run out. We want to know what it is to love and not lose. Thank you for promising this to us. Now help us to believe this promise and to enjoy the fruits of what Jesus has done right now. We don't want to live only waiting for another day. We want to live in it now. He tells us it's ours now. We want a taste of it. Father, help us. By your Spirit, help us to taste of it now. Because our sorrows are so real. And our tribulation is always with us. We need a joy that rises above. We can't find it unless you give it to us. Help us to trust you, our Father. And to treasure the Son that you sent. We pray in his name. Amen.